0: Last time we spoke about the first operations against the defenders of Burma, despite commanders on the ground arguing the defenders should pull back behind the Sitang river, Waffle made the disastrous choice to tell the forces to hold onto the Molmine Beelang area. In the end, the defenders had to flee for their lives to Sitang. Then we explored the situation in the Dutch East Indies where the Japanese decided to capture further territory. They made amphibious assaults on Sumatra, quickly seizing Palembang and its important oil facilities and airfields. Then they sought to capture the island of Bali. This led to the naval battle of the Badung Strait and a complete disaster for the ABDA Strike Force led by Admiral Dorman. The Japanese now held most of Java's Zuo and with their strategic airfields could prepare for the invasion of Java. The ultimate prize of the Dutch East Indies campaign. This episode is the Invasion of Timor. Well hello there, welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I am your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can even begin, I would like to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube. Over there in the upcoming weeks I'm putting out an episode on Southeast Asia during World War I.
1: Go check it out, it would mean a lot to me. So it's been about two weeks since we talked
0: about the fall of Singapore. <sighs> Seems like a, an age ago at this point. And with it, the Malay barrier has been pierced. Java Island is now surrounded and open to attack. The battling bastards of Bataan are literally against the wall. And Burma is now following in the footsteps of all these disasters. Going back to the last time we spoke about Burma, Brigadier Smythe was in a real pickle of a situation. Japan's 55th Division marched out of Thailand through the Kakerik Pass and smashed into General Houghton's 16th Brigade, forcing the men to retreat northwest,
1: earning a very angry signal from Wavell, stating, quote, Cannot understand why,
0: with troops at your disposal, you should be unable to hold Mo Mine, and I trust you
1: will do so. End of quote. Well, the battle for Mo Mine
0: was a complete disaster, and the Japanese seized it and over 5,000 drums of aviation fuel, which further powered up their air
1: force. Wavell became even more furious, screaming to the forces to, quote, Take back all you have lost! End of quote. Thus, and rather unfortunately,
0: the order was given to strike back at the Japanese around the area of the Bilan River. Meanwhile, the 17th Indian Division had been fleeing further northwards towards the Bay of Bengal, where the Sitang River fed south, when they got the order to stop and meet the enemy. The situation did not look good. It looked quite terrible. By February the 12th, London was already beginning to become pessimistic about the fate of Burma.
1: Army Chief of Staff General Allenbrook, noted in his diary, quote, Rapidly deteriorating. I am getting very nervous.
0: We are paying very heavily now for failing to face the insurance premium essential for the security of an empire. This has usually been the main cause for the loss of empires,
1: in the past. End of quote. Just a few days later,
0: the British would suffer another defeat at the Battle of Bilan River, just 30 miles east of the Xitang River. The Battle of Bilan River was a brutal two day close quarter jungle fighting nightmare the Japanese managed to outflank and almost encircle the 17th Division. Brigadier Smythe had wanted to establish a defensive position at Xitang before the Battle of Momain, but as I had already mentioned, he was denied by General Hutton. During the Battle of Beiline, however, Hutton eventually caved in and allowed Smythe to retreat across the Xitang Bridge. Thus, the 17th Division disengaged the enemy under the cover of night, moving westwards towards the Sitang Bridge. Now, the idea was simple. All the forces east of the Sitang River would retreat over a single bridge, and upon doing so, they would blow it up, thus hindering the Japanese for quite a while. But what happens if the Japanese beat them to the bridge first? The 17th Division were short on water as they withdrew Japanese aircraft bombed and strafed the hell out of them along the roads, inflicting horrendous casualties. Because of the hazardous withdrawal, many vehicles and war equipment had to be abandoned. 17th Division raced over 17 miles to reach the Setang Bridge and began to funnel itself over a single lane bridge no small feat, and rather chaotic. By February the 20th, the bulk of the 16th and 46th Indian brigades were still at Kyagto, southeast of the bridge. Only the 2nd Burma Brigade had managed to safely retreat behind the river. The bridge itself was held by a combination of British and Indian units, which would have a very difficult task of holding off the overwhelming Japanese attacks of the 33rd Division, long enough for Smythe's forces to pull back. And amongst them, the Malerkotla Sapers would have the important mission of blowing up the Sitang Bridge behind the retreating defenders. In the meantime, the Japanese had engaged in a heroic cross-country march lasting over 56 hours to try and cut off the defenders near Sitang. On the morning of February the 20th, the invaders finally arrived and started to attack northeast of the allied defenses. For the next 2 days, Smythe's men would manage to contain with absolute great difficulty the insistent and aggressive Japanese attacks. The retreating Indians, meanwhile, suffered deadly bombing runs by Japanese aircraft and also had to fend off assaults from the elite 55th Division. Then, on February the 22nd, to the absolute horror of Smythe, the Japanese arrived at the immediate bridge area and began their assault. Smythe had ordered the Mallarkotla Sapers and Miners, led by Richard Orgyle, to prepare the demolition of the bridge, but the 16th and 46th Indian Brigades of his 17th division were all still further east. They had been cut off by the Japanese. The Japanese were far too quick for them. Now Smythe feared paratroopers might be landed behind their sitang position, so he deployed a force of Gurkhas on the western end of the bridge as more of his 17th tried desperately to get across. General Sakurai launched a strong attack against the eastern end of the bridge, successfully occupying the Buda Hill, which overlooked the bridge and got so close to taking the bridge that they ended up capturing a bunch of Indian medics who were caught unaware. Now Smythe was forced to deploy the Gurkhas back to the eastern part of the bridge, and the invaders were contained at last by the afternoon. Yet the situation continued to look quite desperate. Smythe knew that if the bridge fell to the Japanese... Then they would be marching on an undefended Rangoon in just a few days. The first Japanese charge nearly took the bridge and resulted in his 3rd and 5th Gurkha battalions getting driven off. Throughout the day, intense juggle fighting was mounted and the bridge was nearly taken a second time by another Japanese charge. By the early hours of the 22nd of February, Smythe was forced to make a terrible decision, one that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Constant air attacks created disarray amongst his forces, who were all trying desperately to hold the way open for more of the 17th to cross the bridge. With most of the 17th still on the eastern side of the Xitang River,
1: Smythe was forced to order the bridge to be destroyed Stating, quote, Hard though it is, there is very little doubt as to what is
0: the correct course. I give the order that the bridge shall be blown up
1: immediately. End of quote. This would prove to be one of the most controversial
0: decisions of the Burma retreat. Many would question if Smythe was even in a fit state to command. He was, after all, rather embarrassingly, suffering from an anal fissure. He was in such excruciating pain that his doctors were injecting him with arsenic and cinchonine to give him some relief. If you've never experienced this before, I've heard it is quite painful. Regardless of Smythe's poor Embarrassing situation.
1: The difficult decision was as he put it later on. Quote. If we blew it up. It was in the knowledge that. Two out of the thirds of my division. Would be
0: cut off on the far bank. But if we didn't. A complete Japanese division. Might march straight into Rangoon. It was not. Really a very difficult decision from a purely military
1: point of view." End of quote. General Hutton had wrote similarly, quote, "It was a terrible decision. It had to be made. If he blew the
0: bridge, he sacrificed the bulk of his division. If he failed to blow the bridge, and it was secured by the enemy, the way to Rangoon lay open. General Smythe blew the bridge. In
1: my opinion, it was a heroic and inevitable decision. End of quote. The American General Slim also had something to say about it. It is as follows, It is easy to criticize the decision. It is not easy to
0: make such a decision. Only those who have been faced with the immediate choice of grim alternatives can understand the weight of decisions
1: that presses on the commander. End of quote. So, after stating all of that, while the decision to destroy the bridge can rightfully be
0: justified, what has been more so criticized was Smythe's lack of organization for a garrison to defend the bridge. And that's actually quite ironic if you think about it. Smythe was one of the few guys who had been seeing the action since the beginning of the Burma campaign, and he had argued they should defend the Sea bridge area. It was everyone else that was thwarting him. A little bit of irony there, that he ended up getting kind of caught off guard, though he was dealing with a rather excruciating medical situation. The sound of the bridge exploding was met with absolute disbelief and fury from those on the eastern side of the river. Captain Bruce Kinloch of the 3rd Gurkha Regiment recalled, quote, As the echoes died away, there was a complete silence. All firing ceased, and every living thing seemed to be holding its breath. Then, the Japanese, like a troop of chattering monkeys, broke into shrill chattering. Believing that everyone else had crossed over and abandoned us
1: to our fate, we were filled with anger. End of quote. The now doomed 16th and 46th Brigades
0: were cut off, and they were still retreating under heavy Japanese pressure. The stranded Indian forces then decided to make a last stand at Mokpalan, but the invaders easily broke through their vulnerable defensive lines. Now thousands of the 17th Division had to figure out some crazed way to flee across the river, lest they be taken by the Japanese. And trust me, they did not want to be taken by the Japanese, especially Indian forces. They were treated horribly. Many tried swimming. Some constructed makeshift rafts using empty petrol cans tied to bamboo poles. Around 400 men managed to cross a makeshift lifeline suspended between the spans of the destroyed bridge, using ropes. Sergeant Bill Crouthier and his bandsman Lee Williams manned a machine gun to the very last bullet before diving into the Setang River. Williams recalled telling
1: Crowthier before they jumped, quote, I have to take my chances with the Japs, I can't swim.
0: Crowther, being a very capable swimmer, recalled, The Setang River held no terror for me. Mind you, there were still some snipers and aircraft. How long I spent in that river, I don't know. Helping other chaps
1: to anything that floated. End of quote. Many defenders drowned, or were picked off by Japanese soldiers pelting them with gunfire.
0: Overall, 5,000 men were killed or captured during the Battle of Sitang River. The survivors had around 550 rifles, 10 Bren guns, 12 Tommy guns. The blowing up of the bridge cost the Japanese perhaps 10 days from taking Rangoon, but all at the cost of 20% of the 17th Division. The end result was that the British were now too weak to even hold west of the river. As with Malaya, the British troops were facing the harsh realities of the fighting capability of their enemy. Peter Young, a British commando who had fought in Europe, expressed the racial stereotypes that characterized the views of many British officers and soldiers about the Japanese
1: stating things like quote they are dwarf-like figures under their medieval helmets
0: their mongol faces many with glasses and gold teeth which made them look like creatures from another world Another British officer shared similar views, stating things like this. The yellow little bastards shouldn't give you chaps too much trouble. They're only little
1: runts. End of quote. Even Wavel held some of
0: these views. And in the words of Brigadier Smythe, He recalled
1: Wavell ordering him to Ragoon, stating, Wavell did not give the impression
0: that he thought there was any threat to Burma at all. Wavell never expected the Japanese to get along as fast as they did,
1: or in such great strength. End of quote. A lot of people underplay the issue of race or racial attitudes during the day.
0: But it actually holds a lot when it comes to the British and American forces, for example, during the Pacific War. Early on in the first year, it's certainly true that a lot of mistakes were made. As I have said countless times, taking example, the Battle of Hong Kong. You know, where things were occurring where, for example, British officers were telling their Canadian counterparts... That the Japanese were nearsighted, they couldn't see well at night, so they weren't prone to making amphibious assaults at night, also that they were more prone to seasickness and stuff, thus making them terrible sailors, they couldn't even fly at night or perform operations, for example. Yet I think you have now seen, countless times, not only were the Japanese capable of such things, they trained specifically for them. These racial attitudes don't just extend to the enemy, they extended to some of their allies. For example, on top of everything that's going on in Burma, Wavel refused countless offers for Chinese troops to help repel the Japanese invasion of Burma. Well, after seeing the IJ performance, many attitudes changed with remarkable speed. It is said within days, in the eyes of British soldiers, the Japs went from being, quote, dwarfs to, quote, superhuman fighters. Amongst the racialized attitude problems, the British army in Burma suffered by the quality of its units. Many were raw recruits. Hell, Smythe found out his Indian division had been trained and equipped for desert warfare in Iraq. The British troops were very ill-prepared, and the result was a very inept defense of Burma. February the 28th, Field Marshal Wavell, Commander-in-Chief of ABDA, although partly responsible for the shambles himself, replaced Lieutenant General Sir Thomas Houghton with General Sir Harold Alexander. At this point, British High Command was, <laughs> quite honestly, clutching at straws, as they say. A very bewildered Wavell wrote back to Churchill
1: and Allenbrook, admitting this, quote, I am very disturbed, altogether,
0: at the lack of real fighting spirit in our troops, as they have shown in Malaya, and thus far in Burma. Causes go deep. Softness of the last twenty years. Lack of vigor in peace training. Effects of climate and atmosphere of the Far East. I have no reason to think otherwise, but agree that Alexander's forceful personality might act as a surplus
1: to the troops. End of quote. Would the replacement of General
0: Houghton for Alexander prove to do anything against the enemy? Perhaps. But for that, you're going to have to wait until next week, because now we're going to need to talk about the Dutch East Indies. Back in the Dutch East Indies, the Japanese had just captured Bali, and now they were turning their gaze towards Timor. Now... Timor is actually quite an interesting situation for the Japanese at this point. They face some diplomatic issues. You see, at this point in time in history, Timor was divided under Dutch and Portuguese colonial governments. And in 1941, the Japanese government was respecting Portugal's neutrality during World War II. Portugal refused to collaborate with the allies at the offset of World War II. And thus, Macau and East Timor were both left out of Japan's war plans. And when I say they were left out of Japan's war plans, I actually mean it. It's actually quite surprising to to see that Japan really did not plan for attacking the Portuguese-held part of Timor. Regardless, because Portugal refused to help the Allies, this left Western Timor's flank exposed... And thus on December the 17th, 400 Dutch and American soldiers began to occupy key points in East Timor covertly. Well, this, of course, gave the Japanese some justification for invading East Timor. Much to the dismay of the poor Portuguese who were just trying to keep their heads out of the entire affair. Well, the Portuguese were not so naive as to believe the Japanese would leave them unmolested now that the Allies were running amok on their colonial soil, so they began talks with the British. These rather secret talks eventually ended up with an agreement between the two countries. Now the Allies would abandon their occupational forces in East Timor in exchange for the establishment of some Portuguese defense forces there. This gave Japan even more justification to attack the Portuguese-held part of Timor and thus Portugal sent an 800-strong force to protect its holdings in Mozambique, though they would arrive far too late to stop a Japanese invasion there. The Japanese invasion plan for Timor was quite simple. The Japanese would send one battalion of 1,500 troops of the Doi Detachment, led by Colonel Doi Sadashichi, to hit Dili, while another 4,000 men, led by General Ito, would hit Kupang. The Kupang force would also be joined by some Japanese marines and paratroopers. The forces would be transported and escorted by 3 cruisers and 11 destroyers. Simultaneously, Choichi Nagumo was going to raid Darwin's harbor. As I mentioned in a previous episode, there will be a special episode dedicated to the attack on Darwin which is sometimes referred to as Australia's Pearl Harbor. It's actually yours truly who wrote uh, the script that's going to be coming out hopefully sometime soon on the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. And let me tell you, the attack, or better said the raid on Darwin Harbor, it's a really exciting episode. Go check it out. You won't be disappointed. And of course, there will most likely be a podcast dedicated to it as well. If not, maybe an interview of some one who specializes on the attack on Darwin Harbiter. We'll see. But the one thing you need to know about the bombing of Darwin. Is that it destroyed a ton of allied aircrafts and ships. Including most of the cargo shipping available to support efforts in the Dutch East Indies. Or that of the Philippines. Thus this meant places like Timor could really expect no additional support. Speaking of the Dutch East Indies. Over on the Dutch held side of Timor. Colonel Nico van Straten commanded a garrison of 500 Dutch soldiers. He would be backed up by the Sparrow Force, which was an Australian group of 1,400 commandos, led by Lieutenant Colonel William Legat, another guy with a French last name, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to pronounce it the French way, or I guess in this case the Australian way. I apologize if I up that one. Well, the main invasion force of General Ito departed Ambon on February the 17th, with the Doi detachment leaving on the 18th. The Doi detachment landed on the western coast of Dili, and their ships were mistaken for Portuguese reinforcements. The allied defenders at Dili were taken by complete surprise, but they were well prepared nonetheless, and allegedly they killed over 200 Japanese in the very first hours of the battle. The airfield at Dili was soon taken by the Japanese, which forced the defenders at Dili to make an orderly withdrawal towards the border with Dutch held Timor. Many of the surviving Australian commandos would escape to the south and to the east, where they would begin guerrilla warfare from mountainous interiors. That same night, Dutch held Timor came under an intense air raid, which forced the meager RAF force to withdraw back to Australia lest to be completely annihilated. The air attack was followed up by two battalions of over 4,000 Japanese landing on the southwestern part of the island near the Paha River, which was left completely undefended. At this point, the Japanese force divided itself into three columns, with the leftmost marching upon Kupang, the center upon Penfu, and the right upon Usao, to cut off the Allied retreat. The Japanese forces had five Type 94 tankettes to support them during this operation. When Lieutenant Colonel Legat got reports of the Japanese advances, he quickly ordered the airfield at Penfu to be destroyed, and for a withdrawal east before the invaders could cut off all of them. However, at that time, 308 Yokosuka paratroopers landed near Usa, around 14 miles from Kupang. And were trying to rush to hit Penfu Airfield before it could be destroyed. Lieutenant Colonel Lugard immediately sent a force to attack them, and it soon became a very gruesome ordeal, culminating in a bayonet charge, leaving only 78 Japanese paratroopers left alive. However, General Ito's main force captured Kupang, and soon Penfu, with its airfield. Lagarde's force was soon cut off from their own withdrawal. The allies fought on for two days until they were encircled. Lagarde ordered his force to assault Japanese positions near Usua to make a breakthrough and possibly escape eastwards. Despite the fierce fighting and escape, General Ito's forces quickly pursued them, aided greatly by the Type 94 tankettes. By the morning of February the 23rd, near Nabonac, where General Ito had again surrounded the Allies, Lagat's men were low on ammunition, exhausted. 84 men were dead, 132 were wounded, and they were now surrounded for a second time. He knew the jig was up. Lagat surrendered alongside 1,000 of his men while 290 Sparrow Force Australians and Dutch troops fled east towards the border with East Timor. By the end of February, the Japanese controlled most of Dutch held Timor, and the area of Dili on the northeast. Yet despite the fact the Japanese had effectively neutralized Timor, the Australians mounted a fierce guerrilla resistance group based out of the south and east of Timor, the Australian commandos hid in the mountain range of East Timor and commenced raids against the Japanese using Timorese native guides. Colonel Doy was in charge of mop-up operations, and he eventually sent a message using an Australian to go send word to Major Alexander Spence, who was commanding the resistance,
1: to demand his immediate surrender. Spence responded by stating, quote, Surrender! Surrender be fucked! End of a very amusing quote. You gotta love the Australians. By March, Brigadier William Weil and Van Straten
0: would link up their escaped forces and manage to send word to Darwin about their continued resistance. By May, Australian aircraft were dropping supplies to them in the jungles. The Japanese were not taking the guerrilla resistance lightly. Japanese high command sent a veteran of the Malayan and Singapore campaign, known as the Tiger of Singapore, a Yamashita wannabe if you were. Well, the Tiger of Singapore got to Timur on May the 22nd, and he mounted upon a white horse allegedly, and led a force towards an Amexio to hunt down the guerrillas. An Australian force, with the help of some Portuguese, staged an ambush and killed four Japanese soldiers. Then, a second ambush attempt by Australian snipers managed to kill the Tiger of Singapore. Soon, 24 Japanese were dead to further ambush attacks, and they were pushed back to Dili. By May the 24th, Ville and Van Straten managed to escape Timor using some RAF Catalinas. This left Major Spence, who was now promoted to Lieutenant Colonel, in charge of the entire Timor resistance. Now, I'm really going to start jumping into the future on this one, but the reason why I want to talk more about the resistance of Timor is most likely because it'll not be showcased later on in our episodes. So I didn't want to miss out on it because it's, it's quite cool information. By May the 27th, the Australian Royal Navy launched its first successful supply and evacuation mission to Timor. By June, General Douglas MacArthur, who was now the Supreme Allied Commander of the Southwest Pacific Area, and trust me, that's going to be, well, it's going to have a lot of problems of its own, you know, due to the fact that it's Douglas MacArthur, anyways. He began to make plans for the reconquest of Timor, because of course he would. However, when Douglas MacArthur met with the other Allied Generals, they notified him it was going to take at least 10,000 men, and a hell of an amphibious assault to take Timor back. Thus, it would take quite a long time to ever mount such a venture, and many, many more places required recapturing before Timor, as you can imagine. In the meantime, Ferreira de Cavallo, the governor of Portuguese-held Timor, was beginning to really piss off the Japanese who believed his people were secretly aiding the guerrilla groups. And yes, they they were. By August, the Japanese 48th Division, led by Lieutenant General Yitsu Tsuchihashi, arrived and garrisoned Kupang, Dili and Malacca, relieving the Ito detachment. Lieutenant General Tsuchihashi set to work and began sending his forces out to push the Australian guerrillas towards the south coast in turn the Australians sent a 450-man strong independent company known as the lancer force to timor covertly by september the 23rd the japanese were pulling out their hair at how annoying the situation had become and began a campaign of recruiting Timorese and Portuguese civilians to work against the guerrillas. This soon led to the death of 26 Portuguese, and by November, the Allied command began to issue weapons to the Portuguese covertly. This led the Japanese to order all Portuguese civilians to move to a neutral zone by November the 15th, and any of those who fled would be treated as accomplices to the rebels. Well, by this point, Spence had spent quite enough time roughing it out in Timor, and he was looking to be evacuated in November. And he was. He was relieved by Major Bernard Callanan who was appointed commander in Timor. On December the 1st, the Royal Australian Navy mounted a major operation to land fresh Dutch troops at Betano, while simultaneously evacuating some very exhausted Dutch guerrillas and Portuguese civilians. Unfortunately, the HMAS Armadale carrying the Dutch reinforcements was sunk by Japanese bombers and almost all of the men were killed. By the end of 1942, the idea of recapturing Timor was becoming a pipe dream. The Japanese stepped up their garrison on the island to over 12,000 troops and were catching more and more guerrillas each day. The situation for the resistance became honestly impossible. And thus, in December, major evacuation efforts were made. The Japanese would hold Timor until the end of the war. Overall, the campaign for Timor held little strategic value, but the resistance did hold up at least one Japanese division from being used in other campaigns, such as in New Guinea. After November, the Japanese resorted to the classic burnt earth strategy better said, a scorched earth strategy, where they carried out a brutal and systematic destruction of the food stocks within villages in allied controlled areas. That campaign cost the lives of 450 allied troops versus an estimated 2000 Japanese. And in a very usual and sad way, the civilian population suffered tremendously. Some sources estimate that between 40-70,000 to 70,000 Timorese and Portuguese civilians died, many of those due to Japanese reprisals. In war, and most especially the Pacific War, the true victims are always the civilian populations. I will most likely make a very sad and special episode about the plight of Okinawans at the very end of this series. That's something I know quite well. The Battle of Okinawa is horrifying, especially for the civilians. Getting back to the war, the last of Java's Dao were neutralized, and now the main invasion of Java could begin. By the end of February, Japan had closed the noose around Java's neck, the beating heart of the Dutch East Indies. The three southward thrusts towards Java were all successful. To the north of Java, the key airfields and oil facilities were captured on eastern Borneo, the Makassar Strait, and the Celebes. To the east, Japan held control over Bali, and now Timor. And to the west, Japan captured the airbases and oil facilities on Sumatra. Thus, Java was pinned, because to the south in Australia, some 3,500 miles away, they could not possibly offer any help especially after the raid on Darwin, Abdicom had in effect given up psychologically. They had eighty aircraft remaining. Wavell was advised on February the nineteenth that the Allied air power was virtually done. Air Chief Marshal Pierce forecast the life expectancy for the Air Force just another two weeks. On February the twentieth, Sir Winston Churchill advised Wavell that General MacArthur would be evacuated from Corregidor to set up a command in Australia, and that Washington urged Wavell to buy them some more
1: time, stating, quote, Java should be defended with the utmost resolution, each day gained is of importance, end of quote. Wavell's evaluation of the threat to Java. Led him to speak to Lieutenant General George Brett, who led the air defense of Java, whom stated, Abda command should be wound up when the fighter defense of Java is no longer possible.
0: Many of the pilots were dispirited, such as Hubert Eugenes of the 17th Pursuit Squadron, who said this quote, It's no fun when the Japs Zero comes at you. The Japs are super pilots. They have thousands of airplanes, and their planes are simply the best. Another pilot, George Kisser, said, At all times, we were outnumbered at least ten to one. But still, we managed to get official credit for an excess of 56 victories with only the loss of nine pilots. On the other side of the fence, The Japanese were as confident about taking Java as the Allies were about defending it. Aizawa stated this. Japanese preparation could not have been more complete, thorough, or effective. Virtually defenseless, Java now hung like a ripe plum, ready to fall into the invader's outstretched hand. With permission from Waffle, and Air Marshal Pierce, Brett withdrew his aircraft from Java on February the 22nd. Wavell sent this message back to Churchill on that very same day.
1: It is as follows, quote, I am afraid that the defense
0: of ABDA area has been broken down, and that the defense of Java cannot now last very much longer. Anything put into Java now can do little to prolong the struggle. It is more of a question of what you will choose to save. I see little further usefulness for this HQ. Last, about myself. I am, as ever, entirely willing to do my best where you think best to send me. I have failed you and present here where a better man might perhaps have succeeded. I hate the idea of leaving these stout-hearted Dutchmen, and I will remain here and fight it out with them as long as possible, if you consider this would help at all. Good wishes. I am afraid you are having a very difficult period, but I know
1: your courage will shine through. End of quote. On February 25th, Wavell formally abandoned the Dutch and handed command of Abda as
0: he and his staff left Java for Colombo in Ceylon. In his last telegram
1: from Java, Wavell wrote, I deeply regret the failure to hold the Abda area.
0: It was a race against time, and the enemy was too quick for
1: us. End of quote. Well, despite the abandonment of
0: their commander, ABDA's naval force looked for battle. Vice-Admiral Helfrich took command of ABDA and ordered several British cruisers and destroyers to sail from Tangjung Priok in western Java to Surabaya, where they would join up with Dorman's ABDA strike force. On February the 26th, the western assault convoy of 56 transports was 250 miles from the western end of Java. It was escorted by 3 light cruisers, 13 destroyers, and 1 aircraft carrier, the Rijo. The eastern assault convoy, of 40 transports less than 200 miles from eastern Java, was escorted by 2 cruisers and 8 destroyers. Overall command of the naval invasion was Rear Admiral Takeo Tagaki, a very able but Quite cautious admiral. Reconnaissance reports poured in of the incoming invasion, and Dorman took to the sea. Dorman knew they had no chance to block both invasion forces, and he chose to stand and fight against the first one to hit Java that was to be the Eastern Assault Force. For the Dutch, a naval victory was the only means to save Java. For the IGN, an engagement was their only means to protect their troop transports. Thus, Dorman got aboard his flagship, Diruta, and signaled to his
1: British, American, and Australian companions, in plain English, quote, I am proceeding to intercept the enemy unit. Follow me. Details later. End of quote. Dorman's strike force consisted of heavy
0: cruisers, USS Houston, HMS Executor, three light cruisers, HMAS Perth, HNLMS Deiruta and Java, and nine destroyers. They were hampered by numerous problems, one being a Dutch destroyer with engine problems, forcing the entire force to reduce speed to just 26 knots. Dorman had difficulty making himself understood in English, and the Abda strike force had no common signal books nor common codes. Thus, Dorman's flagship communicated via blinker lights in plain English, which proved extremely difficult to understand in the heat of battle, as you can imagine. A
1: young lieutenant aboard the Houston said this, and I really love this quote. It was like 11 all-stars playing Notre Dame without a single practice session. End of quote. Japanese reconnaissance planes tracked Dorman's
0: column and radioed contact reports back to Takagi well before any contact was made. Takagi knew Dorman's speed and course and decided to send the troop ships further north out of danger, and send his cruisers and destroyers to meet the enemy. At around 4 pm, the two forces came upon another, and the two columns closed in at an oblique angle. The cruiser Jintsu began the battle by firing at the destroyer Electra, 16 kilometers away. At a range of 20,000 yards, the Japanese heavy cruiser Haguro and Nachi opened fire with their 8-inch guns. Brightly colored water rose on either side of the ABDA force. The shells were injected with colored dye markers for spotting. As they drew closer, Dorman ordered a 20-degree port turn to maneuver the ABDA force on a parallel course and open fire with all broadside guns. Within a few minutes, the Houston and Executor opened fire, spraying red-dyed spouts of water around the Japanese column. For the next 30 minutes, the two forces continued westwards on a parallel course, something that was to the advantage of the Japanese, who held a secret weapon in reserve, the Long Lance Type 93 torpedo. At 5 p.m., the Executor was struck amidship by an armor-piercing shell fired from the Hakuro. The shell penetrated her boiler room and exploded, killing many of her boilers. She immediately lost half of her power, and the cruiser began to turn to port to avoid a collision with the Houston directly behind it. The executor then turned out of the column, limping back to Surabaya, Mistaking executor's retreat as a general retreat, the Houston promptly disengaged and started to turn back, causing mass confusion across the abdic Column. Houston's radio was knocked out by a dull shell, and thus, from then on, the USS John D. Edwards
1: skipper, H.E. Eccles, said, quote, All communication was by flashing
0: lights, obscured by gun smoke, smoke screens, and hampered by rapid maneuvers.
1: End of quote. It seemed no one was receiving signals or understanding
0: Dorman. At 5 15 p.m., at a distance of almost 14 kilometers, the 4th squadron of Rear Admiral Nishimura Shoji was the first to launch its deadly torpedoes at Dorman's fleet. A Japanese type 93 torpedo hit the Dutch destroyer, Kortanar, which went up in a great flash of light jackknifing the ship as it sank. The U.S. destroyers launched 40 torpedoes in a counterattack, but yet again, nothing seemed to explode. Over and over again, the issue of these defective torpedoes was the bane of the United States Navy. Meanwhile, the Japanese Type 93 torpedoes were slicing through the water, fanning out to hit the Abdes ships. Many of the ABDIC captains were ignorant towards the incredible range of the Type 93 torpedo and assumed that they had been fired from hidden submarines, causing further
1: mass confusion. Skipper Eccles said, quote, The crystal ball was our
0: only method of anticipating the intention of Commander Combined Striking Force. Then came the orders counterattack. Cancel counterattack. Make a smokescreen. Cover my retirement. It was all very confusing. End of quote. By 5.25pm, smokescreen was ordered by Dorman, allowing the cruisers to break off the engagement and escape southeast towards the Japanese coast. Dorman hoped to get free of the IGN strike force that had thus far gotten the very best of him. At 6pm, the British destroyers tried to counterattack and caused light damage to the destroyers Jitsu and Asogumo. But the IGN returned fire, landing a hit on Electra's superstructure, severely damaging it and creating a serious fire, leading the crew to abandon ship. Despite his losses, Dorman licked his wounds and decided he would turn back northeast with his remaining forces determined to eliminate the enemy and save Java. After two hours of action, Dorman's force had broken off the engagement and was sailing southwards, seeking to evade the Japanese under the cover of darkness, hoping, perhaps, to fall upon their transports. The U.S. destroyers returned to port to refuel and rearm. Takagi cautiously decided to turn back north to avoid further attacks and to regroup. Dorman and the remaining Abda command fleet, now just four cruisers, would find the enemy again at 11 pm, ready for revenge. And that's all for today. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if you are still hungry after all that, why don't you give my personal channel a look at the Pacific War channel over at YouTube? It would mean a lot to me. Oof, what a cliffhanger, I know. But next week, we're going to jump right back into the action for what is known as the Battle of Java Sea. Can Dorman turn the tides and repel the Japanese invasion of Java? Or will this all cultivate into the end of the Dutch East Indies campaign once and
1: for all? Join us next time to find out.